I, uh, I always get a little misty-eyed during baptisms, especially when it's really close friends uh, and family, and now brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, that's just awesome. We should do baptisms more often, right? We should do baptisms more often. We got some work to do. We got some work to do. So if you would, before we get to the text this morning, uh, just pray with me. Uh, I want to pray before we go to God's Word. It's something we should do before we go to God's Word is pray because otherwise it's just letters on a page. We need His help. We need His help to bring the letters on the page into words of meaning and more than just mental stimulation. So pray with me that God would do more than just stimulate your minds this morning, that He would stir affections in your heart. Stir affections in your, in your inner self that would create more than, again, than just mental exercises, but something that produces action. So let's go to the God and ask for help. Father, you are good, gracious, kind, loving, long-suffering, in your patience, O oh God, as you, as you await the return of Christ, giving people a chance day and day after day to repent and turn and believe. You are long-suffering with us. You are patient with us, and we thank you for that, Lord. You're the God of all wisdom and knowledge and understanding and all of all the treasures of wisdom are found in Christ, and so that's it, who we seek this morning. And so we ask, God, that you would illumine your word to us, and that you would plant your word in our hearts, and that that word, that truth, would bear fruit. We desire, O oh God, to not just be a group of people that meet on Sundays and Wednesdays, but to be your church. To do, O oh God, what you have called us to do. To be who you have called us to be. And so we ask, God, as weak people, sinful people, but as also your redeemed people, that you would do that in us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to the 13th chapter of Luke. Uh, we'll be spending our time this morning beginning in verses 18 and reading through 21. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, I wanted to speak to something that was interesting to me last week. Now, I'm no football fanatic. I like a good football game, uh, but I only saw one game all season, and that happened to be the Super Bowl. And I didn't even know the Super Bowl was really on until about maybe two o'clock last Sunday afternoon. So uh, it was all news to me, but I watched the game. It was a good game. It was pretty much everything you'd want from a Super Bowl. But what's always interesting to me is the end. The end of the Super Bowl. After everything is said and done, and they start to interview the, the men that have won, and they begin to interview the, the men who have, have finally got their life's dream, and then they kind of zoom in, like, a, like kind of sneaky-like on the guys that lost. 
right? They're kind of like from a distance, zooming in the guys that lost, and you can see the disparity between the two. The guy on the bench with his elbows on his knees, hands on his face, tears coming down his face because he just lost the Super Bowl. And then you go to the guy who they're interviewing and he's saying, I've dreamed of this. He's got tears running down his face too. One full of despair and the other full of joy. And as I watched, really as one word just kept coming to mind. And that word is passion. There's passion. Passion for a game. For these guys, passion for a real chance to win a Super Bowl. To be champions. Passion to be the greatest. Passion that came with great expectations. And with great expectations, great joy or great disappointment. I couldn't help but think that even after all the hype was over, though, after all the hype was over, all the passion had been poured into this game all season long, practice after practice, meal after meal, gym session after gym session, all the passion was just poured into it for one night. One night of glory. Life would get back to normal just a few days later. Life would get back to normal, and all the passion, all the time, and all the almost zero eternal significance, whether they win or lose a Super Bowl. They would still leave the field empty and seeking and desperate for true joy if they did not have Christ. In fact, they would have, they would have wasted what I would call their God-given desires. Their desires were good Desire is good. It was just aimed. It was just aimed at something that would ultimately never satisfy them. And in the end, it would result, if they didn't have Christ, it would result in the loss of life itself. They wouldn't just lose a Super Bowl. They would lose life when they aimed their desires in the wrong direction. This made me think. It made me think. I want to... So I want us to take a moment and I want us to think. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? What drives you? What really drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you out of bed saying, I'm excited to do whatever? I'm passionate about something. What captures your thoughts throughout the day? What is your mind constantly thinking about throughout the day? What do you constantly find yourself thinking about, talking about, investing in, promoting? What are you constantly trying to get other people to kind of just buy into that something you're so passionate about? Don't know? For some, we we need to look no further than our social media, Look no further than our Facebook or Instagram page or our bank account where we spend our money. Listen, you want to know what you're most passionate about? Just ask your friends. Ask your friends. Ask your family. Because that which you are most passionate about, you talk about. That which you are most passionate about, you talk about all the time. Whatever it is you're passionate about, you invest in. 
You sacrifice for. You give your life to it. You'll spend money on it, time on it, resources, energy, and you'll never give it a second thought. Easiest dollar you ever spent on your passions. Easiest time you've ever sacrificed for on what you're passionate about. For some of us, it's our family's physical well-being or comfort. For some, it's our careers, our cars, our hobbies, our looks, our clothes, our image, what people think about, about us, our schooling. There's lots of things that can take our passions. And these passions, what they do is they eat up our thoughts, they eat up our time, they eat up our money, and it will be what we talk about most. My question for you is this. My question for you in this leading up to the text today is if you got all your heart's desires, if you got all your heart's desires, you win your Super Bowl. Okay, you win your Super Bowl. The question is this, will your life have had any eternal significance? Will anything you had invested in last forever and ever and ever? If at the end of your life you have fulfilled all your passions, you have fulfilled all your desires, you have fulfilled all your longings, will you have fulfilled your ultimate calling and satisfied your longing soul that longs for meaning and purpose? You see, we have a wonderful example. Jesus tells us and he shows us where meaning and purpose is found. He tells us and shows us where meaning and purpose is found. He was a man like you and me. He was a human being. He had desires. He had passions. He had longings. Didn't he? Of course. And throughout the Gospels, he actually is putting on display everything that he is absolutely passionate about. You say, what's that? Everywhere he went, everywhere he went, he proclaimed and talked about the gospel of the kingdom. He went everywhere proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the rule and reign of God. This is what life is about. It's the good news of the rule and reign of God. This is what life is about, meaning living for him, living for him, glorifying him. It was the kingdom that Jesus the one who made the world, eternal God, the one who has all of wisdom in him, said, you know what the most wisest thing to invest in is? The kingdom of God. This is where he spent all his time. This is what he talked about most. This is what he invested, what the little money he had. He invested it all in the kingdom of God. And so he invites us, those of us who say, I follow him. That is my Lord, my King, my Savior. I want to be like him. Therefore, I want to share the passions that he has. I want to share his passions. And so he invites you and me to join him in this passion. He's saying, buy into it. Buy into it. Adopt it. Embrace my passion for God's glory as your own as your very own. In fact, today, in the text we read today, he is speaking of it again in his word. 
His word is speaking to us today and to you and me, and he's talking about the kingdom again. This won't be the last time. This won't be the last time he talks about it. And it's his desire to teach us. Teach us about the kingdom, meaning what is it? What is it? How will it be? How will it grow? How will it be? How will it grow? And it's his desire that we understand this and in our understanding, join him. Join him and participate in thinking about it, talking about it, proclaiming it, investing in it, time, energy, money, resources, and therefore fulfilling our calling of glorifying God as his church. The promise, the glorious promise attached to it, joy overflowing. Joy overflowing in a purposeful life devoted to really the one thing that matters most, namely God's glory. And so we get to the text. What does Jesus want us to know about the kingdom? Let's read verse 18. He says, so he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Well, it's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. This is our Lord and Savior's teaching to us today. What will we get from it? Main point. Main point today is the kingdom of God is something that grows in this world. The kingdom of God is something that grows in this world and it permeates the culture. So it grows in the world and it permeates the culture. And so the kingdom of God is clearly a very central topic in Jesus' ministry. Right, it's a very central topic in Jesus' ministry. In fact, in Luke 4, Jesus says this, I must preach the kingdom of God. I must. Why? He says, for I was sent for this purpose. What's Jesus' purpose for coming? At least one of them? To preach the kingdom. To preach the kingdom of God. And in doing so, snatch people into it. He's coming to seek and save the lost. He's coming to preach God's kingdom and snatch people into it. And so he did. And so he did. He was faithful to that. So we see him preach about it in Luke 6. Luke 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. We see in Luke 8 that Luke tells us that Jesus is going from city to city and town to town proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. And he later tells his disciples in that very same chapter, he says, to you. To you, it has been given the mysteries. It has been given or granted to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. And so he says that to us as well. And then after he does that, what does he do in chapter 9? He sends his disciples out. To do what? To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom over and over and over again. We see this. Chapter 10, 
He brings it up again, chapter 11, 12, and now we're in chapter 13, and this won't be the last time he talks about the kingdom. Chapter 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, all the way up to his arrest, Jesus never stops talking about the kingdom. What is he passionate about? What is he passionate about? It's kind of a big deal then, isn't it? It's kind of a big deal. Why? Because the kingdom of God is linked to salvation. The kingdom of God is linked to salvation. These are not separated terms. To give an example, in Matthew, when Jesus said, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, his disciples' response was, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? It's about salvation. In fact, next week, Brian will be taking us through, uh, later in this chapter, the question of, only a few will be saved? Will only a few be saved, Jesus? And do you know how he answers it? He answers it by talking about who will enter the kingdom. It's all about salvation. John MacArthur puts it this way, that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom is the realm, so it's the realm of those who are under the rule of God, because they have believed, repented, and been saved. So it's the realm of those who are under the rule of God because they have believed, repented, and been saved. So really, this is, this is what all of Scripture is about. All of Scripture, meaning that God sent his Messiah into the world to fulfill the promise of redemption. The promise of redemption of man out from underneath the rule of Satan and under the rule of the glorious rule of God to the praise of God forever. That's a summation of scripture. It's about God sending his chosen one into the world to redeem man out of the darkness and the realm of Satan and into his glorious light. This is why Jesus was so passionate about the kingdom because he is all about. Jesus is passionate about the rule and reign and worship and glory of God. What a great thing to be passionate about and what a phenomenal example to follow. And so, as Jesus begins to tell us this parable, I believe it is right to interpret the kingdom as the rule or reign of God over his redeemed. The kingdom is the rule or reign of God over his redeemed. Again, in verse 18, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the rule and reign of God over his redeemed like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew. It grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air, it nested in its branches. My first sub-point is this, is that God uses the small. God uses the small, he gives the growth, and he gets the glory. God uses the small, he gives the growth, and he gets the glory. Jesus is using a parable. He's using a parable to teach, to teach his disciples about the mysteries of the kingdom, mysteries about salvation, of the rule of God coming to earth, the rule of God coming to earth. This is 
Again, this is most likely not the first time Jesus has used this parable. He uses this almost verbatim uh, back in Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, right before they crossed the Sea of Galilee. So a different point in time, different people, maybe different context, but he's using the same parable. So he's, he's talked about this before. But we also see in Matthew 13 that this is not the only parable Jesus gave about the kingdom. He gave many parables that revealed many different mysteries of what the kingdom of God is like. And so it's important to note that this particular parable is not an all-inclusive teaching of the kingdom of God, but it is a snippet. It is a snippet or a singular lesson of at least one or two aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom is a very broad subject. And if you really want to get your arms all the way around the kingdom, then I suggest you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read all the way to the end of Revelation because that's how you're going to get a better and fuller scope of the kingdom of God. Today is a, is a snippet that Jesus wants his disciples, and by way of the Spirit, he wants us to understand today. This particular illustration, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed. Now, the, the mustard seed was the smallest known gardening seed. It's like a grain of sand. It's very, very small. Think about holding just one grain of sand in your hand. That, that's how small a mustard seed is. And it would also grow to be the largest garden plant that there was. In fact, in just a few short weeks of planting a mustard seed, a, a, gar, a mustard plant would grow to up, to up to 12 feet in just a few weeks. It's a very quick, very rapid process, and it's always been a thing of theirs to talk about the size of a mustard seed, referring to something small. This was a common vernacular of the time. Okay, it's a common phrase used among the people of the, of the time and of that place. In fact, it's used in the Middle East often today just to refer to something very, very small. And so this small and almost insignificant seed would grow to become a tree, grow to become a tree, not a large plant, Jesus says, not a really big bush, but a tree. So the point's pretty simple, right? The point is simple. The, the kingdom of God is going to start small. It's going to start seemingly insignificant and almost, almost hidden, like in, in the ground, okay? And it would grow to a size unimaginable, grow to a size unimaginable, far bigger than just 12 feet. It's going to become a tree. But it's going to start small. How small? Like homeless carpenter small. Homeless carpenter small. Less than a really, really that less than a hundred real followers small. Can you imagine if somebody that was homeless had less than a hundred people interested in what he had to say come and told you that he was the king of kings? You throw him out. You would not take him seriously. Yeah, of course, Jesus has been putting on display his power over Satan. He's been putting, putting on display his power over nature and disease. Jesus has demonstrated his authority and wisdom, as we've seen up until this point. There really should have been no doubt that he was the chosen one. There should have been no doubt that he was the promised one, but they forgot about Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied that he would have no form or majesty, that we should look at him. He prophesied that he would have no beauty, that we would desire him. He would say that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This 
This homeless carpenter and band of Mary followers was not the king they expected. He was not the king they expected, and small certainly was not the way they thought the kingdom was going to be brought in. In fact, they despise small. They despise lowly. And so Jesus did not fit into their box. He did not fit into their box, and he was no king in their eyes, and these disciples, they were certainly no kingdom. But this is exactly how God desires to, de desires to demonstrate his power. This is exactly how God desires to glorify himself through small, humble, meager beginnings that grows and grows and grows like a force of nature that no one has ever, ever seen. And it would happen quickly. It would happen rapidly. This small and seemingly insignificant group, they would become the visible manifestation of the kingdom here on earth. Meaning that through it, this small group it would be visible through the growing number of people who through their word and through their testimony would repent, trust in Christ, believe, and be saved. In fact, Jesus says that it will grow to such a size that even the birds of the air will nest in its branches. What does that mean? Birds of the air, we're talking large birds. Birds of the air were like eagles, hawks, not small finches or bluebirds. These were big birds, and they weren't just going to come and perch on the branch and leave. They were actually settling in. That's how big this tree would become. The idea was that large, huge, big branches that even large birds could nest in. This was a common Old Testament language to describe large, successful kingdoms. Large and successful kingdoms that produced benefits for people even outside of the kingdom, for the whole world to enjoy. In Daniel 4, Daniel 4, we see that Babylon, okay, Babylon is described as a tree that the birds of the air find shade and nest in its branches. So common language for what they would have understood for a very large and successful kingdom that birds would nest in its branches. Ezekiel 31, Egypt is referred to a large tree where birds of the air, they build their nest, and it says here a little more specifically that all the nations of the earth find shade. So Egypt and Babylon were represented as such great and awesome, powerful kingdoms that it, their benefits of being such a great and awesome kingdom wasn't localized to just their country or territory. Other countries and nations would benefit from their glory, if you will, from their power. Ezekiel 17 now refers to the Messianic kingdom. Ezekiel 17 is now a prophecy of the Messianic kingdom, and it also is referred to as a tree. A tree that would be, that would be plucked off of another tree and set on a high hill, meaning Israel. So we have this tree, Israel, it's plucked off of Israel and set on a high hill, and it says that it would bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a cedar. It's a big tree. Become a cedar where birds of every kind, meaning all the nations, would nest under it in shade and in the shade of its branches. So the Jew knew exactly what Jesus was talking about here, or what Jesus meant. That this idea of a kingdom of being such great stature that every nation would benefit from it. 
every nation would benefit from it. The birds of the air here are unbelieving nations. They're unbelieving nations that will benefit from the birth and the growth of the church. They would benefit from the birth and growth of the church. This means that the kingdom, the kingdom citizens of God will grow outside of Israel and into the whole world. The branches and the tree and the root would grow out of Israel and into the whole world, and it will provide through obedience to Christ, through love of God and love of people, a common grace. It would produce a common grace that all the world, even unbelievers, will benefit from. We get to see what this means 2,000 years later, right? Through, through the growth of the church, concepts like love thy neighbor broke out of Israel and into all the world and into society. The idea of sanctity of marriage entered into society. The finest medicines, hospitals, universities, Christians brought all of these common graces to the whole world. And the whole world got to benefit from it. Got to find nest in the shade of its branches. So the lesson here, don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise small beginnings. Listen, Jesus said, I will build my church, didn't he? He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This means that the kingdom of God is not on defense, but on offense. The kingdom of God is not on defense, huddled in, waiting for the enemy to come, just hoping they don't kill us. It is not huddled up. It is out, growing, and taking over. It is an offensive kingdom, not defense. In fact, do you remember, do you remember what Jesus said right before he said, I will build my church? Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter had replied to Jesus saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Meaning that on this profession of Jesus being the Christ, it was on the profession of Jesus being the Christ, on Jesus being the God-man, the one prophesied of, the one who would die for sins and rise again and make peace with God on our behalf. It was on that profession that Jesus would build his church. It was upon the rock of that truth that Jesus said he will build his church and the world will see the external growth of the kingdom. And nothing that Satan can do can stop it. Don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise small beginnings. God is most glorified as the one who takes the lowly, he takes the broken, he takes the small and the, and the seemingly small, he creates great, big, glorious trees out of it. He's the one who takes small, meager things and he creates huge things for his namesake so he gets the glory, not us. And this is exactly what happened. This was, a, this was a parable of prophetic proportions. This is exactly what happened. At Pentecost, the church exploded. The church exploded. It went from 100 followers quickly to 500 to 5,000 to 20,000 in like a few short months. That's huge. 
That's rapid growth. God took a bunch of ragtag, scared disciples and he turned the world upside down or maybe right side up. He turned the world upside down as they went and did merely what they were told to do. You realize they didn't do anything more than just obey. They did nothing more than just obey the call and the, and the commission to make disciples of all nations. They weren't smarter than anyone else. They weren't more talented than anyone else. They just heard their Lord say, go, and they went. Simple. It was the simple and faithful obedience of this small group, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it produced a movement that infiltrated culture. It infiltrated culture in every people group and has grown to be the tree that we see today, and it is still growing. The church is still growing. We here at Community Bible Church, we are a very small branch, twig off this tree. Don't despise it. Don't despise it. It may be hard for us to see sometimes that God could use even us to advance the size of the tree or to increase the number of, of people submitted to God to increase the number of people who are submitted and under his rule, of those who are transferred out of darkness. We're just a small, seemingly insignificant little twig on the tree. But God loves to use small, seemingly insignificant little twigs to do mighty big things. The question for you is this, do you feel like you have little to offer? Do you feel like maybe you have little to no gifts? Maybe you look around this church or other churches and you say, man, I wish I had that gift. Or I wish I had there as many gifts as that person. Or I wish, I wish, I wish, whatever it is. Maybe you feel like you don't measure up to what you think others have. The lesson learned from here is this. Don't worry about what talents other people have. The question isn't how big are your talents and gifts. The question is, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful with the, with the little bit of gifting God's given you? Will you be faithful with the gift God has given you? Will you be faithful with the little? Faithful to recognize that I have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and with that comes gifts and talents, and I don't want to waste them. I don't want to waste them. Are you willing to be faithful to proclaim the lordship of Christ with the talent that you have, with the gifts that you have? Faithful to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Faithful to stand for the truth. No matter where you're at in your walk with the Lord, you have enough to be faithful to preach Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ reigning. This is how we affect change. This is how we affect change. In fact, this is what Jesus talks about next. Look at verse 20 with me. Verse 20, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Point two is this, the kingdom of God is contagious. The kingdom of God is contagious. 
So we see again something small, seemingly insignificant, bringing about big change, affecting the whole measure. This small amount of leaven is placed into a very large amount of flour. In fact, the amount it could feed up to 100 people. And it begins to permeate all the flour until it was all leavened. And that's the idea here, is it was every bit of it. Every ounce of flour was completely leavened, all of it. Jesus is saying that this is the invisible or internal aspect of the kingdom. This is the internal aspect of the kingdom. The seed produced a very visible and external and corporate entity in the world, but the leaven is personal and internal and cultural. Now, you may remember not that long ago, leaven was depicted as something negative, and that's usually the case in Scripture. That leaven has usually a negative connotation to it, right? In chapter 12, Jesus warns them to beware of what? The, the leaven of the Pharisees, right? The leaven of the Pharisees. And this is, this is meaning a warning against self-righteous, hypocritical religion that the Jewish leadership was promoting. So yes, that too is leaven. And so we should understand leaven is like an influence. Beware of the influence of the Pharisees. It indoctrinates it indoctrinates and is really based off fear of man rather than fear of God. Paul talks about this too. He refers to this in Galatians 5, verse 9, saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he, he says the same thing. Leaven seems to permeate. But in, his case, he, in this case, he was referring to legalism. Legalism, which influences, can easily infiltrate a church if we don't watch it. But that is not how Jesus intends the meaning here. This is a... Obviously not an evil influence, but rather a godly influence. This is a godly influence. The kingdom or the salvation of God is something that happens internally. It is something that happens internally, influencing our affections. It influences our hearts, our desires. It is the gospel of the kingdom that when received, it changes us from the inside out. It changes us from the inside out. In fact, when the gospel they received, Jesus says it bears fruit. It bears fruit. It changes our desires. We no longer lust after the world like we did before. We no longer lust after the things of this world or our friends with the world. And we grow in our affections for God. We grow in our affections for Him. We grow in our desire to love God and obey God and therefore love people. Love people. And then for in our love of people, we serve them. We proclaim to them all that we're passionate about, like the kingdom and what God has done for us. What God has done for us. And so leaven is contagious. Leaven is contagious. First, it permeates the individual, and then it permeates the people in that individual's life. This is how the kingdom of God grows. This is what Jesus is saying. And namely, the growth of the kingdom of God is not going to come from the outside, but from the inside, hidden in the hearts of men. The kingdom of God is not going to happen on the outside, but it's going to happen from the inside, hidden in the hearts of men. It is the rule of God in our changed hearts. It is the rule of God in our changed hearts. The kingdom of God is not going to come by way of world domination like Alexander the Great. It's not going to come by way of world domination like Alexander the Great or the Roman Empire or by having the right president in office or having the right policies in place or having the right rules 
or the right laws. No, no, change has never happened by changing the rules. Change has never happened by changing the rules. Change has and always will happen first at the heart level. It happens at the heart level, and the only thing that can change the heart of man from love of self to love of God, from fear of man to fear of God and to the love of others, is the gospel. It is the gospel that changes the heart of man. You want to know how to change the world? You want people to stop killing babies? You want people to change their mind on the way they view homosexuality and the way they lust after the wrong things? Stop telling them what to do and start telling them who they must serve. And that is Jesus Christ. It is only the gospel that will change the heart from one who wants to kill their baby to save their baby. That is it. It happens not through external means, but through the internal heart. It's through the internal change of mankind. Heart change happens by the means of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Heart change happens by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the means by which the Spirit works is through the proclamation of the gospel through his church. Don't think that the Spirit will do it all. I don't have to do anything. Don't neglect the means by which the Spirit desires to work, and that is through you and your proclamation and the passion for God that he's implanted in your heart comes through preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so leavened people spread leaven to other people. It has an effect. Bread rises. Bread rises. Jesus says that this gospel influence will at some point permeate every bit of the flower, meaning the whole thing. This means the world. Can you imagine can you fathom the whole world leavened? So the kingdom should be understood as the leaven, and the flower is the world. And Jesus is saying that it is his teachings and influence and message of the gospel that will start with these few disciples. It will start with these few disciples, and it will spread and spread and spread to the whole world. In fact, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, this would have been unheard of, unfathomable, right? The way of salvation, as we understand it, was before his resurrection, before his death and resurrection, was to believe in God of Israel and his plan for salvation through the coming Messiah, whomever that may be. It was faith in the work of God to redeem. It was faith in the work of God to redeem, and this faith really was localized to a few people mentioned in Scripture, as we understand it, before, before Abraham came. And then after Abraham, right, to a small region of the world, a nation of Israel. That, that teaching, that teaching of salvation by faith in God was localized to Israel. Their calling was to be a light to the nations. That was Israel's calling, to be a light to the nations. Because outside of the few people before Abraham, and outside of the nation after Abraham, the rest of the world was completely pagan. Completely pagan and under really complete domination of Satan and his deceptions. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that even most of Israel was pagan. Most of Israel was pagan. Not, and only a remnant of Israel, by God's grace, were ever, 
were ever given any submission to God, were ever any complete submission to God and faithful believers by God's grace. It was the leaven of Satan, if you will, that had been permeating the world and most of Israel. That is, that is until the fullness of time had come. That is, until the fullness of time had come and the king of kings broke into our world and he began to take over. That should thrill you. That should excite you. Because the one who would change the world would come and he would preach the gospel of the kingdom. And as we've seen, he would overpower demonic possession. He would remove demonic oppression. He would begin to take over Satan's domain. And he would take the message of the gospel and he would implant it in the heart of his people who, by the power of the Spirit, would now take that message to the whole world as we see in Acts. As we see in the book of Acts, they take this message to the whole world and they would begin permeating and permeating and permeating community after community, village after village, nation after nation. That is what's so amazing is that the kingdom of God exploded into the known world. And again, it didn't happen with an army of horses and spears, but by a church with a message of the truth and lives changed by it. It happened with people who went from love of self to love of God and others. And that is contagious. Love of God, love of others, changed lives by the gospel, regenerating power of the spirit, that is contagious but it must be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed. When we are faithful to obey and love God with all our heart and love others, when we are faithful to preach the gospel, it will permeate. Jesus says so. Jesus says so. It will permeate. It will influence. It catches. It touches the lives of your neighborhood and your workplace and your schools and your family. And just like the leaven changes the flower, the kingdom of God changes the person and the family and the neighborhood and the school and the workplace from the inside out. And he plans to use you to do it. He plans to use you to do it. Again, we get to see the results 2,000 years later. We see that the kingdom of the enemy is getting overthrown. That should excite you. Society has changed since then. Barbarian societies are rare when they used to be the norm. Barbarian societies are rare when they used to be the norm. Churches today are popping up all over the world. Something like 95% of the world's populations have some or all of the Bible translated in their own language. Approximately 65,000 people profess a faith in Jesus daily somewhere in the world. That's pretty awesome. About 1,500 churches are started up every week. And listen to this. None of this has ever happened because of political power or strong armies. No, this all happened by faithful people. Faithful individual people. Faithful local bodies. Faithful churches that were regenerated by the Spirit, changed from the inside out, and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens by people who have been changed. Jesus is building his church. Amen? Amen. But the enemy still rages. 
the enemy still rages. He still plants false doctrines among the wheat, among the churches. There's still false demonic religion growing at a rapid pace, demonic ideology, demonic teachers, false teachers, and so on and so on. We get to see that too. We get to see that too. So the war continues. The war continues. So what? We must be vigilant then, shouldn't we? Therefore, we must be vigilant to be faithful to the mission of God, to be passionate about what he's passionate about. We must be faithful people who are destined to be influencers, influencers, to be those that permeate our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, one person at a time, one child at a time, one neighbor at a time, one boss at a time, one coworker at a time. That is how change happens as we preach the gospel and love people as God has loved us. That is how it has been working for the past 2,000 years. Why should we try to change it? So like the early church, like our forefathers before us, we join them. You join them. You preach. You preach the good news and you watch patiently for the Spirit to work the change of heart and give the growth. May we join Paul. May we join Paul in saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It is the power of God. Not my ideas, not my systems, not my political desires, not the right president. That is not the power of salvation. That is not the power of a changed heart, but it is the gospel, our greatest weapon. May we use it. May we preach it. And so the kingdom of God is both external and present, and it is also hidden. The kingdom of God is both external and present in his church and is hidden in the rule of God in the hearts of his people. And one day, though, it will not be so hidden. One day it will not be so hidden, but Jesus will come back. Jesus will come back and he will lay claim to his people. He will lay claim to the world. Jesus will come back and lay claim to the whole world and he will reap his harvest. Meaning he will gather his people unto himself and he will cast out all those who have rejected the offer of salvation proclaimed by his people. That's the truth. And so if you are here today and you have not received Christ as both Savior and Lord, as Savior and King, and maybe you're here every week and you're saying, man, they say this every week. I'm not calling you out. You just did. You just did. The Spirit brought that out. I'm talking to you, if that's you. If you still cling to your sin, you still cling to your sin, you still cling to your good works that you think will cover that sin, then I urge you today, by the authority of God and Scripture, to turn from your sin, to turn away from your good works that you think you have and you cling to Christ. You cling to him. Deny your good works and cling to his work on the cross for you. Put your hope in the one who gave his life for you, who bled for you, who paid for you. Salvation and reconciliation to the God of all creation. Please 
Please don't think that just showing up here week in and week out somehow earns you any place in the kingdom of God. It does not. It earns you nothing. Jesus paid your way. He offers you his blood. He offers you his blood to pay for your sin and to give you his righteousness by which you will not enter the kingdom of heaven without it. He offers you a new heart with new passions and new desires, new longings, and he offers you the kingdom. But if you reject this message, if you reject Christ's offer of salvation and you die today, or Jesus returns, then it will be too late. You will still be in your sins. And you will bear the wrath of God forever. And it will be just. It will be right. And it will be holy of him to do so. Don't be the NFL player that pours the entire life into a passion that only winds up losing in the end. Redirect your passions to Jesus' passions. Redirect your passions to him. Jesus is your victory. You can't lose with him. You can't lose. He has shown you what to be passionate about, namely him, his glory. Believe, be saved, live for him. Christian, Christian, keep fighting the fight of faith. Keep fighting the fight of faith. We have a glorious hope to come and in this life. We have a glorious hope and a glorious calling to influence, to permeate, to be contagious with the message of the gospel. This is our calling until he returns. But when he returns, Christian, when he returns, every eye will see the king that we have been reclaiming. Every eye will see this king who we have been proclaiming over and over again. Every eye will see the kingdom that we have been telling everyone about. Then it will become visible and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we will not be ashamed. We will not be ashamed in that day. It will all be to the glory, to the glory and praise of the Father. Let's pray.